I was thinking today, where do, where do I begin? Where do we begin this new year? With what conversation? What do we talk about? And I was thinking about how, um, like where we are and what we're doing. And, and if you're here or you're listening in some way, shape, or form right now, what, what you've already expressed in some way is that you're interested at some level in who Jesus is. What, what did he do? What was he about? What was the point of him? And so I was thinking about, as we start this new year, we're asking this question like, well, who is Jesus? And why does it matter? And what does it mean to follow him? Because I think sometimes we miss what that might actually be in the world around us. And so we're asking these questions, who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? And so I was thinking about, well, how would we describe Jesus? And so I thought maybe we'd talk about the way um, people, his followers are described. There are called over and over again, not necessarily Christian, but they're called disciples, a disciple of Jesus. And I was there, and Jesus himself was known as this. He was known, and he was called many things, but the thing he was called more than any other thing, in fact, he was called over 60 times in the scriptures, rabbi or teacher. Now, teacher probably doesn't do justice to what a rabbi actually was, right? That, that probably is a little bit less than what we would describe a rabbi in Jewish culture. So a rabbi, to give some background, right? A rabbi is not new by Jews, right? If you know about um, Plato and Socrates, Socrates was Plato's rabbi, his teacher, if you will, and he followed him. He was a disciple of him. But it would go even more than that, a different kind of teacher that's even greater than that. And to follow them is something bigger and deeper than just the idea of like, I follow a few golfers on Instagram or some news feeds, and when I miss something they say or post, I don't really care. I don't go back and look and go, oh, man, I can't believe it. Did you know that guy's playing a new set of irons right now? No, I don't really care, right? Like, if I see it, cool. If I don't, it's not a big deal, right? If I miss some news, not the end of the world, I'll survive. But to be a disciple of someone, to follow in the way the Scripture invites us to understand, it was a privilege. It was radically different. To follow in the way that Jesus invites his followers to follow is kind of all-encompassing. In fact, I would say it this way. You had to be picked to be a disciple of someone. You couldn't just say, oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus, right? No, no, no. That's not how that works. To be a disciple of Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher had to say to you, you, you can be my disciple. Come, follow me. Right? That's radically different than the world in which we live. We're like, well, like, well I'm going to go to this college because I want that teacher, and so I get to choose where I go. That's not how it worked in that day. It's not how it worked for older people. It's not how it worked for kids. It's not how it worked for anyone. You were picked by the rabbi to be their disciple. Right? And so probably we should talk about education because education in Jewish culture, it mattered. It matters in our culture. It mattered then. Right? We find that the more we learn, the, the more we understand, and the more we can be healthy and wise and all the other things we want to be in life. And so in Jewish culture, there was levels of school. So Bet Sefer was the level that everyone went to about the age of six to 10, roughly. Even girls went in that culture. Girls went to school until the age of 10. And so you would go to school. There's approximately a four-year window. And they didn't have lots of books in that day. Not surprising. They didn't have the printing press. But they did have this idea that they would be invited into learn. And they would learn, they would learn the scriptures. So like, you know, we go, what do you mean by scriptures? Well, they would learn like the Torah, the Old Testament. So the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Here's the crazy thing about that age of student from 6 to 10. They would memorize, right? I did say memorize those five books. Boys and girls, 
as well, from the ages of six to 10. Like some of you are like me, I've got a 10-year-old daughter, right? Um, got that right this time. For those of you who know what I'm talking about, yeah. Um, I can't imagine her memorizing the first five books of the Bible. She's pretty smart. Like she does really well in school. It's easy for her. I cannot imagine this. Right? Have you read Leviticus and Numbers? Have you ever read those books? They memorize them. And then, if you were a good student, you would get to go further school, right? You took a Bet Talmud or House of Learning, and you would go to further school, and you kind of got picked for that. So, girls, you were out. Right? Sorry. Uh, maybe you're, like, good. Um, but because you'd be getting married soon, so you didn't go to school. Like, that's how that worked. And, and so you would go to school, in this school of learning, you would memorize the entire Old Testament, right? If you have your Bible, you can kind of look and see. That's, like... 70%, 80% of the book, right, is the Old Testament. You would memorize all of that. Right? I should stop there. That was in the ages of 10 to 14. I have a 12-year-old son. I cannot imagine him memorizing a book of the Bible, let alone three-quarters of it. Just can't. But they did. Because that was a culture. And then, right, if you were the best of the best, you were read into what's called Bet Midrash, which is house of study. And you would go to a rabbi and you would begin to like plead with them to lay out your case of why you should be their disciple. And they would ask you not just to regurgitate what you knew about the scriptures, right? Because they knew you already knew all the Old Testament. They didn't care about that. They knew you knew that. They would then ask you, hey, can you not only tell me about the Old Testament, but can you tell me what so-and-so says about that particular passage? Right? You need to be able to tell me, like, so if you're going to reference the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hero Israel, the Lord is one, tell me what, what some other rabbi has said about that passage in their writings. Oh. Not only do I have to memorize it, but I have to know what other people say about it? Yes. Right? So how would I kind of translate the, at, that for us today? Maybe, just maybe, like if you want to get into Harvard or Yale, uh, it's pretty hard, right? Like most of us aren't going to do it. Probably no one in this room could do it. That's maybe insulting to you. Sorry, probably true, right? Like that's how that works. We just can't get in, right? It's hard. It's really, really hard. Unless your SAT score was like 15, 1600, you're not getting into there. And so what's that mean? Not everybody was invited to be a disciple of Jesus. Not everybody was invited to be, let me phrase that. Not everybody was invited to be a disciple, period. Forget Jesus for just a minute. In fact, then if you were a follower of your rabbi, you would follow them so closely, right? There's a phrase in the ancient world, to be covered in the dust of your rabbi was like a great sign, right? So they would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, ancient world, not a lot of paved roads. You would find yourself walking in places where the dust would kick up and you would literally follow, like follow the leader, like kindergarten guy going to lunch, you would follow your rabbi from right behind so that the dust they would kick up would cover you. And that was considered a great disciple. Right? There's even a biblical scholar named Ray Vanderlaan who, who write a lot of his stuff is to be covered in the dust of the rabbi. Right? I want to be covered in the dust of Jesus. And so this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, just a few years ago, I wish I could remember who was telling me the story. They were in New York City in Central Park, and they were going to the bathroom in the park, and there was a Jewish rabbi. And following him into the bathroom was like seven or eight other guys. Not because they, well, he goes, I don't think they had to go to the bathroom too, but they followed him in because they didn't want to miss anything that the rabbi might say. I think I could wait till they got done, but... 
I've never been a disciple of someone in that way where you didn't want to miss anything they might say or do. And that's what it looks like to be a follower, to be a disciple of a rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi. Maybe a helpful analogy, we could talk about an apprentice in our day, right? Some of you know what this means. Like you are an apprentice of someone, means you are a, like if you're learning a trade, a skill, like an electrician or a plumber, you become an apprentice of someone and you pay attention to what they do because if you don't learn what they're doing, you're not going to become a master yourself, but also you will fail and not have a job, right? So you pay really close attention to what they're doing because you want to learn the trade. You want to master the skill. Jesus is the ultimate master, and you and I are invited to be his apprentices. So why am I talking about the idea of apprenticeship or disciples? Because in the Bible, 268 times in the New Testament, the word disciple is used to describe the followers of Jesus. Three times, the word Christian is used. 268 times, disciple three times Christian, and those three times, it was a derogatory way towards a random group of people. In fact, if I talk about this way, nine times in the book of Acts, followers of Jesus are called followers of the way, right? The way of Jesus, the way of his kingdom, the way of following after him. Nine times they're called that. And so why in the world am I talking about this? Because they wanted so desperately to be known as people that were followers of the way of Jesus. Because the early church recognized what we sometimes try to reject. You and I, everyone in this room, we follow someone or something. We all follow someone or something. Even if we follow ourselves, we are following someone or something. So the question is, who or what are you following? And for the early church, they wanted to be abundantly clear that they were following only Jesus. So I've been thinking, what would that look like for them? Well, did you know in the first 300 years of church history, they had no Bible. There were no scriptures for them to, to hold and read. There was no New Testament for them to know who Jesus was and what he was doing. They didn't have that, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four gospels, the good news according to these people of Jesus. They didn't have that. So what did they have, right? His central teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, that was was well known. It was orally carried on from church to church, and people would gather, and they would talk, who is this guy? And they go, well, he, he taught these things, and they would pass this along by word of mouth. And there were letters that circulated that would rearticulate those things. And eventually, some of the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John that we have got circulated around, and they were passed from here to there. But for the first 300 years, they didn't have anything they called their Bible. They didn't have the New Testament. They had conversation, and it was centered on this, who is Jesus? What has he done? And what's it look like to follow him? And why does that change everything? And so then I think about our day, right? Most people um, identify as Christian, not because they're followers of Jesus, but because they're not Buddhist or Muslim or whatever else. So I'm Christian, right? Like I'm, I live in America, I'm, I'm Christian. I believe in a God, so I'm Christian. And for many people, that's what we would say. In fact, um, I'd say this way, uh, Barna Research did a study years ago and, and they wrote a book called Unchristian out of this study. And so here's just want to mention what this looks like for them. They were talking to young Christians or young people in particular. And here's the quote. In the research for that book project, our team discovered that 84% of young non-Christians say they know a Christian personally. Yet only 15% 
say the lifestyles of those believers are noticeably different in a good way. All right, this book was published, I think, in 2007. Um, I go further and talk about a guy named John Mark Homer um, giving a message, and he's talking about this, the idea that 76% of Americans, this is Barnett and other studies, 76% of Americans call themselves Christian. Sounds like a super awesome number, right? Except, and don't ask me how they figured all this out, except when you dive into it a little more, only 8% of those people would call themselves followers of Jesus and have committed their life to following Jesus. I would love to tell you today that that surprised me and I was shocked by it. I honestly wasn't. I wish I was. I'm not surprised that lots of people say I'm Christian because like, I'm not Buddhist or Muslim or whatever other religion you want to come up with, and so I must just be Christian. And I wish I was surprised that more people aren't committed to understanding to be a Christian is by definition to be a disciple of Jesus, to be his follower, his apprentice. But what, what does that mean for us today? Jesus never asked us to buy into a belief system. He called us to follow him. Jesus never asked us to buy into a belief system. He called us to follow him. In fact, as we find in the book of Mark, I'm going to read today a couple different passages, but here's the first one from Mark chapter 1. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets without delay. He called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. His call to his earliest followers was simple. It was, follow me. These people who were working in these jobs were obviously not the best of the best. They did not get into Harvard or Yale or Princeton or wherever else. They were working in family trades. And Jesus, a rabbi, a teacher, goes to them and says, hey, I know no other rabbi would pick you, but I pick you. But here's what it means to be picked by me. Follow me. Be my disciple. Be my apprentice. Come to know who I am. Know the way in which I live and the way in which I'm calling you to live and then again, he's not done there. We see this in Mark chapter 2. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now this guy, Levi or Matthew, would have been pretty smart, by the way. He was a tax collector, so he was a person who would have been kind of trying to rip off his own people. That's how he made a living. He would give money to Rome, but he would keep money for himself, right? Like, that's, this was his job. He was despised by his own people who lived in his own community. He would have been wealthy. But again, in all his wisdom, right, he, like, he had, like, street smarts. He was not invited into the way of life of others. But here, a rabbi came to him and said, I know what you are doing. I know what you have done, but I'm still inviting you. Will you come and follow me? And again, these words from Mark chapter 8. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Again, follow me. And then he goes on to say this teaching that's so hard for all of us to be his disciple, must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Well, where did he go? He died on a cross. Right? He spoke these words, and then he actually did it, and then he calls you and I to the same way of life. Nowhere does Jesus say, hey, follow me. It's easy. But what he says over and over again, hey, follow me, and I'll give you life. Hey, follow me, and you'll find purpose. Hey, follow me, and you'll find a way that's worth living. Hey, follow me, and you'll find the best life that you never knew you could even have. Hey, follow me, and you'll come to know that there's a God who loves you more than words could ever express. Not even death itself could keep his love from you. Hey, follow me, and you'll find out what it looks like to know why in the world you exist. Hey, follow me, because I'm the way and the truth and the life. And I'll connect you with he who is the divine. Right? And so I was thinking, um, it would have been a foreign idea to Jesus to say that you believed in him and would not reorient your entire life around him. That is a foreign concept to Jesus. Hey, I believe in you, but I'm not going to reorient my whole life around you. I believe in you, but... ah, I just want to add you. And so one of the hardest parts for us in our faith is so often, uh, especially in our culture, we, we like want to be followers of Jesus, but here's what we want Jesus to really be. Right? I've used this, this analogy before. We want him to be like a condiment, right? Like we get a burger and like we want to like add Jesus to it when we feel like it, but we want to keep Jesus separate when we don't. We don't want him to be Lord or be our rabbi, our teacher. We don't want to be his disciple. We, we, don't, we want to follow when it's convenient, but when it's not convenient, I don't I, ooh, let somebody else do that. Those are those crazy religious people. Right? And I know sometimes we'll hear people say this, just believe in him and it's enough. That is a foreign concept to Jesus. Nowhere does he say that. He says, come, follow me, be my disciple. James, his brother John says later in one of the books in the Bible, right? he says, hey, uh, you show me your faith and I'll show you my works because you cannot separate these two things. Because if I truly believe in something, it will reorient my entire life. And that is what Jesus invites us to. Not to give lip service. Because honestly, lip service is a waste of time. Jesus invites us to come to know who he is and to follow him with our whole being, to be his disciple. His command is simple. Follow me. Follow me. He doesn't say embrace a set of beliefs, although they do have their place. He doesn't say go to church every Sunday, although Jesus went to synagogue every single week. It's all throughout the scriptures. He doesn't say a lot of other things, but he does say over and over again, follow me. Follow me so closely that the dust from my feet will kick up and cover you and you will look like me. Follow me so closely that when people see you, they'll go, huh, that must be what Jesus is like because I've come to know them and they know him so well. Follow me so that you begin to look and sound and act like me. Be my disciple. What does it look like for you and I to do that? Right? I'm, I'm borrowing these phrases. These are not mine, so I want to be clear. Um, but three phrases that might be helpful. We see them all throughout the Gospels in many different ways. But three ways we think we can do that. One, we want to be with Jesus. Two, we want to become like Jesus. 
Three, we want to do what Jesus did. So be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. And so I want to unpack those a little bit because that seems like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, well, let's do it. I'm in. Uh, or you're like, I'm out. Um, either one. But what we find is this. He says to be with Jesus. What does this look like for us? Um, I love this quote from John Mark Comer. He said this, the first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Spirit. One of the coolest things about following Jesus, he invites us to allow his Holy Spirit to be present with us in such a way that we commune with God, that we are connected to God every day, all day long. And so the first and primary role of discipleship is to be connected to the Holy Spirit in a way that changes who we are. To learn to sit and be with Jesus. Friday night after a prayer, I was, I was giving Dave and Denise Young a hard time because and they were kind of affectionate towards one another. I said, well, it's good you've been married this long and you're still doing this. That's great. Um, but I was thinking about how, and then we had this conversation. In the conversation, I said, yeah, you know, there's, there's times where you see older couples who've been together a long time and you see one of two things, right? Like they're sitting and no one's talking. And some people go, oh, that's so sad that they're not even talking anymore. Maybe, or maybe for some of them, what's true is they've just learned that they're just happy to be with one another. They are just present with them, and that is good enough. Words don't have to fill the empty space. There is a comfort with being present with, to be with Jesus, and invites us to be like that old married couple who is happy to just be together. They don't even need words because they are present with one another. And how do we do that? These words from John 15, which we're going to talk a lot more about next week, maybe are helpful for us. Here's what John writes. Remain in me, or in some of your translations, abide in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. I love that passage for so many reasons, but there's this invitation of Jesus that we would be with him in such a way that we would abide in him, that we would find our life source to be him and the work of his spirit in us. In fact, what he says is this, I desire for you not only to know me, but to remain in me so that you can bear fruit in your life, so that your life matters, and what you do matters, and what you do has impact, and it transforms not just you, just you but your family and the community in which you live, and it ultimately will transform the world so that people will know this. And how does this happen? Because you abide, you rest, you remain in me, in Jesus, you serve, as again, he says, showing yourselves to be what? To be my disciple, my follower, my apprentice. And then he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And then these words, now remain in my love. 
God does not desire to be taskmaster, pointing fingers and pushing buttons, but he longs for his people to be connected to him in a way that's relationally bound in love. And you and I are invited to come to know that love through the person with Jesus. So, so us to be with Jesus, we need to remain in him, to abide with him, to spend time with him. Brother Lawrence, right, like an old school monk kind of guy, right, here's what he said, you want to practice the presence of God. Do we practice the presence of God? Right? We do these by things we call spiritual disciplines. Right? We, we can talk about those some more uh, in the coming weeks. Right? We, we spend time in prayer. We spend time reading our Bible. We spend time in silence and solitude. We spend time in meditation. We spend time in community. We do all kinds of things because they help us to practice the presence of God. Being with God in silence is super hard, by the way. I had someone tell me this week, they're like, yeah, you know, like, whew, like prayer time. Silence, whew, silence is no good. Um, but here's what I would say. Uh, if you want to begin to practice being with Jesus, here's the simple challenge. Spend five minutes each morning before you even look at your phone in silence. Spend five minutes. I mean, I, I, let's say 10 or 20, but I, I, I don't want you to freak out already. Like, set a timer on your phone. That's fine. Set a timer. Leave it in the other room. But, but set a timer and then go spend five or 10 minutes in silence. Saying to God, God, I want to be present with you. I want to know the depth of your love that you have for me. And I want to be more like Jesus. So I want to just sit with you in these quiet moments. I've tried to embrace that in my own life every morning. Like one of my favorite things, every once in a while, Gracie can beat me up, but I don't know how she does it. But, but every once in a while, she beats me up. No one else does, right? Not Isaac and Katie. Like I'm definitely going to beat them. All right, so I'll get up and it's just silent. And I'll just sit in a particular chair in the corner of the living room. I'll make a cup of coffee and I'll sit there. And I'll drink the coffee, and it is dead silent. I turn on one light, that's it. And I just sit. And then I begin to open a devotional book I use, and then I read one chapter from the Old Testament, one chapter from the New Testament, and then I have usually a book I'm reading as well, and I read this, and I just sit in the silence, and nothing fills it. Um, usually I'm done before anyone else wakes up, and when those days, when my days start that way, like the day is way better. A morning when I'm rushed out the door or things hurried or I overslept, my alarm didn't go off, whatever. Like, have you noticed how those days never feel right? But I have never had a day where I started with Jesus where it felt like it was a mess from the opening moments of the day. You and I get to control two things in life, when we wake up and when we go to bed. Mostly. I get if you have little kids, that's maybe not true for the wake up part. But you do get control when you go to bed. And you can choose to find five to ten minutes of silence alone with God if you want to. It is a decision you and I get to make. Let's be with Jesus. Second part is become like Jesus, right? Um, maybe you noticed this morning, uh, Mac played and Denise played. Have you noticed like they're super skilled on their instruments, right? Like they, they move a bow across some, some strings and they move their hands around key, keys and you're like, huh, that's really impressive. Like there's all kinds of sounds and noises. Um, did you know that if they showed up this morning and said, you know what? And they never played those instruments before and they showed up and said, hey, I'm going to be awesome today. Never practiced before, never done this, but guess what? I stayed at Holiday Inn Express last night, and I'm about to kill it on this piano. Doesn't happen. Have you noticed this? Like, it does not work that way, right? They have years and years and years of practice. We become like Jesus through practice. By saying, God, like, I want to not only spend time with your spirit, but I want to embrace like, things like you teach in the Sermon on the Mount. I want those to define my life. Right, right, by the way, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Go read it. It's the central teaching of Jesus. 
Right? Every biblical scholar in, in history has said that's the central teaching of Jesus. Go read it over and over again. Live there if you want to, because you won't go wrong. If you follow that, you'll follow Jesus. Right? We could say, um, other people go, like, we could say, well, the fruits of the Spirit, right? Like, um, you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. You go, like, we're not going to wake up and go, you know what? Fruits of the Spirit, I got them now. I'm good. I'm going to master one this week and another one next week. That's not how that works. It's a lifetime of going, God, over and over again, will you help me? I want to practice being more gentle. I want to practice being more patient. Like, just think how much your kids would love if you did those two things, right? You're more gentle and patient. I'm going to practice. I'm going to practice goodness and gentleness, patience and self-control. I'm going to practice love. Like, I'm going to practice these things. Like, it takes work, right? This is the part of the faith that's work, right? It's easy. It, it's simple to know Jesus called us to follow him. It becomes work when we take it seriously and we become his disciples. That's where our activity joins God's activity. It's the work of his spirit and our effort coming together. And we become people who become his followers, his disciples, right? And sometimes I hear an excuse, right, for why, like, I, I've said, hey, we're, I've asked people the question before, um, hey, well, um, do you think Jesus would do that? Well, I'm not Jesus, which is their way of saying like, well, no, Jesus wouldn't do that. I know enough to know he wouldn't do that, but I'm going to do it because I think it's okay. And I said, well, here's my question to you. Um, I've had this conversation with some of my family. They love me so much when I ask this. Um, Not my ones who live here, but like my brothers and parents and others. And like, you know, that's a really great way to build camaraderie. Um, It's not, by the way, just so you know. I'm better with other people than my own family. Like they're probably, some are listening today, I'm sure. And they'll later go, yep, you're right. Um, have more patience with others, right? That's why Jesus, a prophet, is not without honor in their own hometown. I get it. Um, so I was thinking, right, what's it? I hear this excuse. I'm not Jesus. You're right. You're not. No kidding. But you're come, called to become like Jesus. If you're his follower, his disciple, right, the whole point of the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, is they looked like Jesus. They wanted his life to rub off on them, and they wanted to be a reflection of him, right? The best disciples, the best followers all throughout human history, the best disciples, they looked and sounded like the one they were trying to follow. To the point you're like, huh, they sound like Jesus. What might happen if you and I began to practice becoming like Jesus? Third one, do what Jesus did. All right, there's all kinds of things I could, I could unpack all day long here. There's lots of things you just did. We go through the, you can read the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, see all the things he did, right? Like he went to church or synagogue every week. Um, he prayed. He was in a discipleship group. He had like a, a small group of three and a group of 12 and a whole lot more. Um, he healed the sick. He preached. He taught. He was a peacemaker. He looked to help the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. He ate with people who were far from God and were ostracized by society. I think sometimes we miss that one. Jesus did all these things. So what's it mean for us in our day? Well, one, you can do everything that's listed right there. In fact, we're invited to do those things. But what if we also did this? What if the world in which we live, we worked about to bring about God's kingdom, what we see in the scriptures that Jesus invites us to in every aspect of our life? And all the places we live, we work to bring God's kingdom into those places. Or you see an organization doing good kingdom work in the community, you join up and you help. You see a need and you fill it. 
I've been thinking for several weeks, like, how are we going to begin this year? What's it look like for us to think about this particular year? Right? Every year, like, so here's, here's how this works for me. I, I, I function best, our church functions best, our people function best. When months out, usually at least a year out, we kind of think about what's that next year look like? How are we going to articulate what it means to be followers of Jesus? And, and so I've been thinking about these next several weeks for several weeks for several months. And I find myself wrapped up in this whole thing right here that I don't know that we know who Jesus is. At least not the Jesus we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. At least not the Jesus that Paul writes about. I think we have caricatures of who he is. I don't think we come come to know him very well. And so what might happen if you and I spent, I mean, I'm going to say like the next 12 weeks, but really longer than that. What if we spent our lives going, hey, I really do want to be his disciple. I really want the dust of his life to be all over me. I really do want to live in such a way that people go, huh, man, they're like Jesus. I want to be committed to that. And so that's really what we're going to do all the way through Easter is we're going to be committed to asking the question, what's it look like to follow him? What's it look like to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he did? What's it look like to embrace the practices or the disciplines of the Christian life so that I can come to know him more? What's it look like to do that? And so we're going to live there over and over again because he invites us to this kind of life. And so I am convinced that you and I need to live in that way. So one of my favorite authors, he's since passed away, but a guy named Brennan Manning. And Brennan wrote a book called The Signature of Jesus. It's honestly one of my favorite books of all time. It's in my top five. I don't know where I'd put it, but it's in my top five always. I don't see it ever being supplanted. I could be wrong, but I'd be shocked. But the title really kind of gives the whole thing away, right? If you're going to write a book, don't give it all away in the title. The signature of Jesus. And what's his point is this, that he wanted to live a life and believe people who are followers of Jesus were to live lives that were marked by the signature of Jesus. That they were his disciples, his followers, his apprentices. This is the question I have to ask myself and you and I have to ask ourselves today is, is our life marked by the signature of Jesus? Are people confusing you and I with him? Are we becoming so much like him that they're going, man, did you meet Billy over there? Billy is like Jesus. Or are they going, like the, the Barna study, 84% of non-Christian young people, no Christian, they go, yeah, but only 15% of them do anything good that's better. In fact, most of them I don't like. It's a reflection of us, not those outside the church. It's what might happen if you and I who decide to commit to follow Jesus. If you're like today going, ah, I don't know if I'm, I want to follow Jesus, at least you know that. I would invite you to come to follow him because I believe it's the best thing I've ever made the decision in my entire life to do. Right? I, I believe this is why we're launching Alpha in a couple weeks because we think creating space for people to have conversation, to ask deep questions of life, like that matters. But if you have said, you've given lip service with your life, here's the challenge for you and I. Will we we reorient everything about who we are into following him or not? Because if we're going to say, no, I'm not going to reorient my life, then here's what I'll say to you in the nicest way I can, then you're not a disciple of Jesus. You can try to use Christian moniker all you want. It's just not true. So what might happen if you and I reorient our entire lives around being a follower of Jesus, right? I said, here's the great thing about who he is. Again, what's he saying in John 15? 
Abide in me. Find your rest in me. Find your hope in me. Find love that transcends all kinds of love in me. You want to know how much I love you? I'll go to the place of death on a cross for you so that you can know the depth of my love. Why does it matter? For some of you in this room, this might be helpful. If we want our kids or our grandkids or the next generation to follow Jesus, we have to model it. And if we don't, don't be shocked when your kids or your grandkids don't follow Jesus. I'm just going to tell you that's true. But when they look at your life, the things that matter to you are not centered upon him. When they get older, their life is unlikely to be centered around him either. Now, I don't want to ever underestimate what God does in the work of his spirit, because lots of people make decisions to follow Jesus later in life. That is awesome. I mean, what if we just set our kids and grandkids up for success in their faith more than success in their job? What if that was the primary purpose of our life? What if that honestly is the primary purpose of parents and grandparents, right, is to help disciple the next generation? Those other things come with it, by the way. If we do that really well, often the other stuff comes well too. So here's what I'd say to you today. Here's the invitation for you and I. Jesus is calling you and I, as he does all throughout the Gospels, to follow him. Will you and I follow him? Right? We can abide in, be with, become like, and do what he did. And so this morning, we're going to invite you to do what he did. He gathered his disciples, his followers together, and he said, hey, um, as they're seated at a table, they ate a meal together. He said, this is my body broken for you in the same way this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And he invited them to come to eat that bread. They passed the cup and they ate the bread together. And he said, every time you gather, do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because you can't do this. Here's the truth. You and I cannot become better followers of Jesus because we want it really bad. We can practice and we can be with Jesus so that his spirit begins to empower us and we can do what he did. And then over time, what we go is, huh, I used to be like this, but man, God has so transformed me that I'm like this now. And it's not like, like, I'm awesome bragging about it. It's just like, no, like, I know what he's done. And I know who I used to be. And I, I love people I never used to love. And I spend time with people I never even liked. But I know God calls me to it, and I'm happy to do it. And by the way, you're still going to have people you don't like. It's okay, but you still got to love them. And so he invites his followers to come to this table and go, hey, like, you need my grace because you can't do it on your own. And come to this table, receive my grace. And here's the cool thing about the way God works. We believe everybody is invited to his table who says Jesus is Lord. In other words, this morning, everyone in this room is invited to come to the table and participate in communion. We do it this way. Like you take a piece of bread, someone says to you, the body of Christ. You dip it in the cup, someone says to you, the blood of Christ. Or if you're like freaked out by germs, we do have some options in the back for you people, right? Um, not that that's bad. It's just another option. But here's what I'll say. As we do that, you come to that table. We say it's open to anyone with this caveat. By coming to this table, you're saying, by the grace of God, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to reorient my entire life around him. And so this morning, I invite you to come to the table. And by coming to the table, what you are committing to is this. I'm going to reorient my entire life around the way of Jesus. And over these next several weeks, we hope to help you understand better what it looks like to reorient our entire life around Jesus. We pray with me this morning as those who are going to come help with communion come. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together today.
We thank you for the way that you love us, invite us to come to your table. You say to us again and again throughout the scriptures that you are mine and I am yours. And you invite us to say that we can find life and life to its full. That you invite us to come to your table in a way that says it can change everything. But God, we know that we can't do this on our own. We know that we need your grace extended to us. We know that we just feel like we always fall short without you. And so this morning as we come to the table, may your grace be healing for us. May it be hope for us. May we find that what you enter into, you invite us to know you more. And so, Father, we thank you for your love and for your grace and for your mercy. Pray all this in Jesus' name.